This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. I think one of the most important issues Christianity is facing today is its attitude toward the Word of God. As I survey the Christian landscape, I find that, although most Christians claim to believe the Bible, they really don't. It's not that they don't want to, it is more that they don't know what to believe because there are so many Bible versions and they don't know which one is correct. In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus asked a very important question. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? When we reflect on this question, it cannot mean will there be anyone trusting in something, be it him, or anything else, because everyone trusts or has faith in something. Sometimes, when we translate into another language, articles like the, that, etc. are added or left out. In the Greek text we find the word the before faith, but not in the English. This is not an error in translation, it is a quirk of language. In my home, we speak both English and French, and this often happens when we go from one to the other. For example, in English, we would say, next week, I will do such and such. In French, we would say, the next week, I will do such and such. When we find the expression the faith in the Bible, it is referring to the body of doctrine that is taught in Scripture. Jesus was not asking if he would find those who have received salvation by faith, he is asking will he find sound doctrine. All you have to do is look at what is being taught in the different religious groups today, to know that it was a very good question. There have been different beliefs almost since the beginning of Christianity. It all started when some people started corrupting the word of God. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, and the sight of God speak we in Christ. It says there were many who were corrupting the word of God before the end of the first century. When we look at history, we learn that most of the corruption seemed to revolve around the deity of Christ, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. These corruptions found a home at the theological school in Alexandria, Egypt. One of the greatest promoters of them was a man named Origen, who was the head of this school in the first half of the third century. He made many changes to the text of the New Testament to match his doctrinal beliefs. The Greek texts the modern translations are based upon have their origin in Alexandria. They were rejected by the majority of Christians and fell into disuse by the end of the fourth century. This would explain why a few of them have survived relatively intact. Before I get into the main subject for today, I have a question we must answer. The question is, do you believe God or do you believe man? To answer this question, I want us to look at some important passages of scripture. The first passage I want to look at is Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 7, which say, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and mocketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, and a salt land, and not inhabit it. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. We are told that those who trust in man are cursed, and those who trust in the Lord are blessed. I doubt that any of us want to be cursed. There are two things we must do if we want God's blessing. The first is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 
For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because, when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word of God must be received as it is, the word of God, not the word of men. If we receive it as God's word, that means we believe it to be true, and we try to follow it in every area of our lives. We don't have the right to say one part is essential and another is not. We are not to judge God's word, it is to judge us. Secondly, we must be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. We are to search the scriptures, so we know what God said. How else can we know what we are to believe? We can only follow God's precepts if we know what they are, and most of us won't heed them unless we understand that they are God's, and we are expected to do what they say. Remember, God is always right, all the time, and in every situation. Anything that is contrary to God's word is wrong, no matter how many people may say it is right. The Bible holds Abraham up as an example of faith in God. In Romans chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, we see what kind of faith he had. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that, what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham believed, if God promised something, he is able to keep his promise. Can you imagine the faith it took for Abraham to believe that God would give him a son when he was 100 years old, and his wife was 90? She was long past the age of bearing children. Imagine the faith it took to offer the son God had given him on the altar. We are told that he believed that God could and would raise his son back to life, if necessary, to fulfill this promise. If we really believe God, we trust him, even when it doesn't make sense to us. I have had people tell me they asked God to do something, and God didn't do it. They thought something was wrong with their faith because they didn't get what they asked for. They were right, there was something wrong with their faith, they were trusting in their faith instead of God. When we trust God, we trust that when he doesn't give us what we asked for, he knows what is best. If I had known in advance that I was going to have a heart attack, I would have asked God to keep me from having it. If he had granted my request, I wouldn't be here today because they found something else that would have killed me. They would not have found it without the heart attack. They were able to fix the problem, and now you get to listen to me on the radio. In the 118th Psalm, verses 8 and 9, we learn who we should trust. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Men include our friends, our teachers, our pastors, and the like. I don't mean we shouldn't listen to these people, but we should always check out what they say by the scriptures. Princes would be our governmental leaders. They made some major mistakes during the COVID pandemic. They are making some major mistakes concerning their attitude toward morality. Just look at what they are doing for the security of our nation with the open border policy. We need to check them out by the scriptures before we elect them. We often make the mistake of thinking that God's word only applies to our religious and spiritual life. It has instruction for every part of our lives, and when we don't follow God's precepts, things don't go as well as we would like them to. Isaiah chapter 34, verses 16 and 17, tell us to seek the book of the Lord, and read it. Seek ye out of the book of the Lord, and read, No one of these shall fail, none shall want her mate, 
for my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. And he hath cast the lot for them, and his hand hath divided it unto them by line, they shall possess it for ever, from generation to generation shall they dwell therein. What do you suppose the book of the Lord is? Just in case you don't know, it is the Bible. Nothing written in the book will fail, and everything will happen in the proper context. We can count on it because the Almighty God has commanded it. We will have the book of the Lord from generation to generation. This means it will never be unavailable to those who seek it. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The words of God are as pure as the purest silver. These pure words are kept by God from the time they are written, forever. Again, every generation, from the time God's words are penned, to the end of time, will have access what has been written. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. God's goodness assures us that his truth, which is his word, endures to all generations, even ours. All of these passages promise that there will never be a generation that will not have access to what God has revealed in his word. Depending on how you count a generation, there have been some 70 or 80 generations since the last part of the scriptures was penned by the Apostle John. Through all those generations, God's word has been available to everyone, or God is either a liar, a weakling, or a fraud. Think about this, either God preserved his word for all generations, or you and I have no idea how to be reconciled to God, and to have our sins forgiven. If the text of God's word has been lost, as the textual critics who are trying to find it say, how do we know where they have been successful, and where they have not? Is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, true when it says we are saved by grace, through faith, without works? Or is this passage erroneous? I choose to believe the infallible God of Scripture promised to preserve His word for all generations, and that He did so. If He did, where do you suppose He preserved it? Do you think He preserved it among those who had departed from its teachings, or among His faithful followers? The vast majority of the evidence, more than 95% of it, supports the received text that underlies the King James translation of the Bible. This means that less than 5% of the evidence supports the Greek text underlying the modern versions. All the evidence supporting this new Greek text comes from the Alexandrian text, a text modified by Origen, who we have already looked at. The evidence supporting the received text comes through the faithful followers of Christ, who were persecuted and killed for their refusal to depart from its precepts. Those behind the new Bible versions tell us that the true text of the scriptures has been lost, and, through textual criticism, they are seeking to find that true text. If you read the testimony of those who are leading the research, you will find that almost all of them don't believe we ever had an inspired, infallible Bible. In light of all that I have given you thus far, you must make a choice. Do you believe God, who said he would preserve his word, or do you believe the men who say he did not? I choose to believe God, and not men. Last week I mentioned that there is strong evidence that the main Greek manuscript underlying the modern translations is not the oldest and best. It was actually written in 1839 and 1840. Today I want to give you some of the evidence for this. The Greek manuscripts behind the modern critical Greek texts are Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. The first, Vaticanus, was found in the Vatican Library of the Catholic Church. 
It is thoroughly Alexandrian in form and context. The second, Sinaiticus, was found in a Greek Orthodox monastery near Mount Sinai. This is the manuscript that is responsible for most of the changes in the critical Greek text. Both of these manuscripts are supposedly from the 4th century. There is evidence that both of them are more recent than this. Since Sinaiticus is the one responsible for most of the changes in the new Bible versions, I will only look at the history of this one. Sinaiticus is said to be the oldest and best complete manuscript of the Bible. The first error in this statement is, it is far from being a complete manuscript. It is missing some 40% of the Old Testament. Many words and passages in the New Testament are missing also. There are only fragments of the following books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Numbers, Joshua, and Judges. It only has parts of 1 Chronicles, Leviticus, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Exodus and Hosea are completely missing. Does that sound like a complete manuscript of the Bible? Most of the Apocrypha, which was never accepted as scripture by those who were faithful followers of Christ, are included in the Old Testament. The Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas were added to the New Testament. Remember the Shepherd of Hermas, it will be important later. Sinaiticus was supposedly discovered in a wastebasket, waiting to be burned by the monks, in 1844 by a Lutheran biblical scholar and manuscript hunter, Constantine von Tischendorf. He took a number of sheets from the basket and gave them to King Frederick Augustus of Saxony. It was called the Codex Frederico Augustantus. Over the next 15 or so years, Tischendorf returned several times finding more of this codex. For time's sake, I am abbreviating those parts that are agreed upon by both sides of the argument concerning the dating of this document. It is significant that, when reading Tischendorf's testimony of how he found this document, you will find three different versions. One time he said he found everything, another time he said a monk helped him find some, a third time he said he offered a copy of what he had to a monk, and the monk said he already had it and took him to his room and showed him the rest of the manuscript. This should make his testimony suspect. Let's take some time to look at the historical facts of this. The monastery where the manuscript was found is St. Catherine's Monastery. It was one of a complex of monasteries that were trying to make a major change in the Greek Orthodox Church. This church used the Byzantine Greek text, which is the text family used by the King James translators. A bishop named Benedict was one of the leaders of this movement. He thought the Alexandrian text was the better text because it was more in line with his beliefs than the Byzantine text. Remember, the text from Alexandria was a text modified by Origen, who did not believe in the deity of Christ or the miracles of the Bible. He also did not believe in the infallibility or even the inspiration of Scripture. Bishop Benedict had a nephew, Constantine Simonides, who was gifted in paleographic arts. This means he was one who researched and copied ancient documents. When he was 19, Simonides was asked by his uncle to make a copy of the Alexandrian text. What I am going to tell you next is contested by those who are behind the modern Greek text, but after a week and a half of studying, I am convinced that it is the truth. I have looked at both the testimony of Tischendorf and Simonides, and, as I said before, Tischendorf's is all over the place, and Simonides is consistent and aligns with the historical facts. 
For example, there is historical evidence that Simonides was in all the places he claims to have been, and the times he was there fit his testimony. In an article that appeared in the Guardian newspaper in 1862, Simonides claimed to be the author of the Sinaiticus Codex. This was, of course, disputed by those who wanted Sinaiticus to be a 4th century document. Until this time, Simonites had been highly regarded by those who now criticized him. What had changed? Nothing except his claim to be the author of Sinaiticus. After he made this claim, he was accused of being a forger and seller of forged documents. I told you to remember the Shepherd of Hermas, which is part of Codex Sinaiticus. Here's where it becomes important. The Shepherd of Hermas was supposedly written in Greek during the 2nd century. However, there were no existing Greek copies of it. All the copies of this document were Latin translations. Simonites had apparently translated the Shepherd of Hermas into Greek and tried to sell it. I don't know if he tried to pass it off as the original or an early copy or if he claimed it was a copy he had made, but Tischendorf went to great efforts to expose it as a fraud. Here's where it gets interesting. Further research showed that it was the same as that found in the Codex Sinaiticus. The initial argument was that it was added to Sinaiticus later. However, further research showed that it was written on the same parchment, with the same ink, and in the same handwriting as the rest of Sinaiticus. We must ask, if Sinaiticus was from the 4th century, how did it get a 19th century copy of the Shepherd of Hermas attached to it, in the same ink and handwriting? Maybe the copyist lived for 1,500 years and kept his ink bottle for all that time. I really don't think so, do you? After this discovery, Tischendorf tried to backpedal and endorse the document Simonites had tried to sell as an ancient document. His only other option was to admit that Sinaiticus was not as old as they were saying, and that would destroy their efforts to replace the Byzantine text with Sinaiticus. Remember, the Sinaiticus Codex is full of errors and corrections. This is consistent with Simonite's claim that it was the one poor work of his youth. As I studied this, I wondered what would have motivated Simonites to create this document. I have already mentioned the reason, but let me go over it again for the sake of clarity. His uncle was part of a company of monks that wanted to replace the Byzantine text with the Alexandrian. By producing this document, he was able to give some weight to the argument that it was the oldest and best text. There are other reasons to question the authenticity of Sinaiticus. One of them is the color of the pages. There is testimony to the fact that, when first found, all the pages were as white as snow. When you look at the high-definition photographs of the pages online, they are all yellow. This makes them look older. What is interesting is, those pages given to King Frederick Augustus of Saxony are in a different library than the rest of them. Those in the British library are yellow, and those in the Russian library are still as white as snow. The photographs found online are all yellow, even those from the Russian library. It was common practice for forgers to use lemon juice to give false documents the appearance of age. It would turn the paper yellow, make it a little brittle, and lighten the ink. All of these are things you would expect of ancient documents. The pages have never been chemically tested for age. They started to do so in 2015, but it was never done. The question is, why? Since the early witnesses of this codex all say it was all white as snow, it is my guess they are afraid of what they might find if they did the tests, 
When we look into the history of the move to replace the Byzantine text with the Alexandrian text, we find constant links with the Catholic Church. The Jesuits were the Catholic response to the Reformation. They made up what was called the Counter-Reformation. The goal was to bring the Protestants back under the authority of the Pope. The Latin Vulgate was a Latin translation of the Alexandrian text and Codex Vaticanus, the other text which they claim is one of the two oldest and best manuscripts is also Alexandrian. It is in the interest of the Catholic Church to have the text considered the oldest and best. Just before his trip to the St. Catherine's Monastery, Tischendorf visited the Pope at the Vatican. Many of the others involved with the Bible version issue have done the same. It is also interesting that Catholics, usually Jesuits, were involved on every committee forming the new Greek text. This Catholic involvement is caused to question the reliability and honesty of those trying to get us to use the new Greek text. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 18 warn us about associating with those who do not follow God's precepts. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. This is just one of the many passages that deal with separation from false teachers and pagans. The Catholic Church qualifies on both of these. It is one of the major players in the ecumenical movement, which desires a one-world religion. At first, it only attracted those who claimed to be Christian, but now it attracts every group you can think of, including Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and even Satan worshippers. True Christians are not to have fellowship with those who work unrighteousness. How can light commune with darkness, yet those involved in the fight to replace the received text with the Alexandrian text commune with everyone, but most especially the Jesuits of the Catholic Church? The question I asked in the beginning is, do you believe God, or do you believe man? I went through all that I have said so far for two reasons. First, I want us to understand that God is always trustworthy. We can believe what he says. Secondly, I want us to understand how untrustworthy man is. When the revised version of the Bible came out in the late 1800s, many good men were fooled into accepting what the textual critics said. They started using this new version, but as they did, they found that many things had been changed. In very short order, most of them returned to the King James Bible. Sadly, many commentators who used the King James Bible still believed the critics. For example, the Schofield Reference Bible Notes, which originally appeared in the King James Bible, uses the teaching of the critics. For example, the Bible verse that most clearly teaches the Trinity is 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, which says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The critics say that this verse does not belong in the Bible. Here is Schofield's note on this verse. It is generally agreed that 1 John 5, 7 has no real authority and has been inserted.
this has never been generally agreed by the average Bible believer. It is, however, generally believed by the textual critics who support the New Greek text. This note was put in Schofield's reference Bible because he believed the critics, who are men, more than he believed God. I read a lot of the old-time Baptists from the 1800s, and many of them believed the critics, and some of their writings, they used the revised version. I tell you this, so you will understand that good people can be fooled, but only until they ask, who is right, God or man? There is a warning found at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the Bible, against changing God's word in any way. There is a curse upon those who change it by adding or subtracting anything to it. Adam and Eve chose to believe the Bible corrector, rather than God. It not only cost them dearly, we are still paying the price today. Many, if not most, who say the Bible is the word of God, believe it when it agrees with them, but dismiss any part that doesn't. This is why there are so many Christians who question those who stand for sound doctrine. If I had a dollar for every time I have shown someone where they are following their teachers, rather than what God said in his word, who, in spite of this, have decided to follow their teachers, I could probably buy myself a new car. I want to emphasize that most of those who have done this are good, faithful Christians, as were their teachers. The point I am trying to make is, we need to check everything by the word of God. Listen to what we are told in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. There were false prophets before the end of the first century who were corrupting the word of God. They have increased over the last 2,000 years, and the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more of them there will be. We cannot afford to drop our guard, the souls of men are at stake. The questioning of God's word began in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That word subtle means crafty and cunning, in a bad sense. Do you think Satan is any less subtle today than he was in this verse? The question Satan asked, Yea, hath God said, is the same question asked by the modern-day critics. They don't believe that God said what we find in the vast majority of ancient Greek manuscripts. They do believe that what God said was lost, if it was ever accurate. Many of the critics don't believe that there ever was an inspired, infallible, Bible. They approach the Bible like any other book. Faith in God's promise and power to preserve His Word is never considered. After all, they are smarter than God. My challenge to you is, believe and trust God. He is always right, all the time. Listen carefully to what we are told in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. If we allow those who do not believe the truths of God's word to sway us, it will remove the effectiveness of our faith in God. We will always be wondering what God really said. We are to let God, and what he has written, be true, and let every man who contradicts or disagrees with God be a liar. Judgment Day is Coming Jesus told us, in John chapter 12, verse 48, 
that we will be judged by his word. He that rejecteth me, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. If we want to receive the reward promised to faithful Christians at the judgment seat of Christ, we must follow what God says, not what man says. God has given us his word, and he has promised to preserve it for every generation. He did this because his judgment will be based upon what he has told us, not on what we think he should want. My time is about up for today's broadcast, so I will have to wind this down. For the 130 generations since the first words of God were written, and the 70 to 80 generations since the completion of God's revelation to mankind, it has been available to those who want it. If this is not true, God is a liar. Those who say it was lost, ignore and reject more than 95% of the evidence, and base their conclusions on two very corrupt documents. You have a choice, believe the textual critics who say it was lost for most of this age, and they are trying to reconstruct it in the new versions, or believe God, who says he has kept it pure for every generation, and stick with the tried and tested King James Bible. I choose to believe God. Thank you for listening. Please join me for another Bible lesson next week. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828 828- 244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.